You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom agony. Laura Ann Gelman is the author of Silver in the Road and The Cold Eye, the Cosa Nostradamus books, which include the Retrievers and the Paranormal Scene Investigations Urban Fantasy Series and the Art War Trilogy. Her new novel is Uncanny Times. Thank you for joining me, Laura. Oh, thank you for having me. This is a wonderful book. To start with, you said in 1913, that's an interesting time, both sociologically and technologically. And so both of those um, aspects of the setting offer a challenge for you. And so let's start out with the sociological setting. I mean, this is a time when women couldn't vote. Your main character is a woman. Uh, so right off the bat, you have some sociological challenges in creating your character because she's lived in a world lives in a world that is absolutely different than the one you've spent your entire life in. Very much so. Um, I chose the period before World War I specifically because there was so much change happening. Uh, even when people weren't aware of it, it was around them, it was changing the world around them. And I thought this was a fabulous time to be um, writing something spooky, writing something that was... Um, Uncanny. Uh, what I really loved about it, though, is that Rosemary and Aaron have this really interesting dynamic where she is the older of the two. She's the big sister. And they've been raised in a world where they are both expected to be soldiers, basically. Um, they are raised in a family that teaches them to fight, that teaches them things that women were not taught. And at the same time, she has to present this facade um, of being a gentlewoman. And she has to defer and let other people speak to her brother, even though she's usually the primary partner, being a few years older. And it just, it created such an incredibly interesting dynamic between the two of them that that was a great deal of fun to play with. Because yes, she is raised one way, but has also been raised to behave a different way. And she has to be able to basically code switch at a moment's notice. You know, um, the title of this book and the word used often to refer to the various critters they do and do not um, encounter and mention on Kenny, that's a word straight out of good old Sigmund Freud, unheimlich. <laughs> Can't ignore that. <laughs> that's a big ticket uh, left line right there in the road. For me, it was... Honestly, I didn't realize that until after I'd started working on the project. Um, I was going for the the sense of things that are not, the things we see out of the corner of our eye, the things that are not known. I was going very much on, on play of canny, of, of to ken something, to understand it. These are the things that are not known. These are the things that, that are not understood. Um, and it, it just, I needed a, a category that was broad enough to take in all of the fairy tales all of the myths, all the legends, most of religion, 
everything that was not clear cut and human. And that term just really very much came to me very early on. Um, when I was originally writing the book, it was just called Huntsman. And then I was like, okay, I need an actual title and came up with that. But that was, that was the sense. I was going back um, the wordplay of Kenny to Ken something to not Ken something. You know, uh, I, I, one of the things that you mentioned this, and I think this is one of the big strengths of this book, is the brother-sister dynamic in the book between the two. So, and it's really interesting because, as you say, in any social situation that they show up in, Aaron is expected to take the lead, but they're both soldiers, and she's the older soldier. She's the commander, essentially, by rank and by age. And, and that provides a really nice dynamic for the two of them. Uh, talk about sketching that out, you know, for this novel and for other novels. A lot of it, when I write characters, um, I'm not the kind of writer who plans out their character traits or even anything about the character ahead of time. I tend to write my way into the character. Mm. Uh, which means usually there's a lot of stuff that gets thrown away. My, my Patreon gets to, to read a lot of that stuff. Um, and I will just write dialogue and I will write scenes, uh, most of which make it into the book because I waste not, want not. But a lot of times I won't know something about the character until I'm halfway through a scene and all of a sudden I go, oh, yeah, okay, that makes total sense. Um I think, and this this bit makes people laugh when I tell them once they've read the book, I did not realize that Aaron was neurodivergent until about a third of the way through the book. Mm. I was writing him a specific way because it felt right. Mm -hmm. It felt like how he should be. And then I started going over doing revisions and I'm like, oh, okay. Now that makes a lot more sense in that how he sees the world versus how Rosemary sees the world, how others see him versus how they see Rosemary. Um, because nobody knew what that was at the time. Uh, and I'm like, well, why is he like that? Oh, and then there's a bit in the book that we learn more about as the story goes on that explains why he's like that. Uh, but I don't plan this ahead of time. I don't plan the dynamics. The dynamics come out of their interaction as I'm writing them. So I get to be surprised along the way. I mean, I'm sure I joke that I have a lizard brain and a mammal brain and the lizard brain goes ahead and does all the work. And then the mammal brain comes along and, and does the writing and thinks it's it's created something. Uh, and they don't talk to each other. So I'm always surprised. <laughs> well, that I, I think to my mind, that's a, that's kind of a, the better way to write the book, because then as an author, you're taking yourself by surprise as as it develops. Mm -hmm. um, and, and that makes it more likely the readers will be surprised as well, as well. Yeah, as long as I go back and make sure it all makes sense, you know. Sometimes you get <laughs> sometimes you get taken by surprise, and you're like, "Oh, I got to go fix stuff." Yeah. <laughs> now you mentioned your Patreon readers. Um, mm -hmm. Talk a little bit about uh, how that plays into your writing process. That's a that's a interesting and. That's a new technology that was not around uh, back, you know, 20 years yeah. ago. Or even 10, really. Yeah. Uh, I started Patreon um, 
quite bluntly, I had an elderly cat who was diabetic and um, insulin for animals costs a heck of a lot of money. It's like $300 a month. And I was like, okay, I need to find some way to make more money. And somebody said, do a Patreon. And the first thing I did was this very silly serial series called Duchess PI, uh, which is a feline investigator and her German shepherd friend, who's the, the police lieutenant, and they live in the alley, which is not a place you want to go. <laughs> and this spun off into these endless stories and people were like, yeah, we want more. Um, so we finally published them. And at that point, I'm like, OK, I got to Obviously, I have something here. Patreon for me has been really fun because I get to do projects that I know don't work for mainstream publication, uh, whether because they're too short or they're just too niche or I'm just I'm experimenting with things. I've done a lot of experimentation um, writing. Uh, I wrote a, a paranormal romance novella um, with uh, underrepresented characters. The first one is uh, a triad, uh, an actual threesome um, that I really want because I hadn't seen. I, you see, you see triangles all the time, but I wanted to see a committed threesome, a committed triad, and people loved it. And mm -hmm. I'm like, okay, this is this is fun. I get to do things. I get to sit at my desk and say, okay, I'm going to put aside the stuff that's stressing me for a while. And I'm just going to goof and I'm going to write something for fun. And I get to share it with people. And it's it's a really good feedback loop because they're like, yes, we love this. I'm like, yes, I have energy now. Um, and then I can go back to the thing I was stuck on and be like, OK, I have this energy and I can get this done. I also do um, the monthly rant, which is probably what my Patreon is best known for. Um, it is definitely language not safe for work whatever is really pissing me off that month um i just go for it and um this sounds actually, like i'm gonna have to tune in <laughs> they're they're actually they're actually two volumes now called i have strong opinions and i have more strong opinions <laughs> uh, shocked i'm shocked uh, I, I can yeah people this. are always like oh wow you have opinions okay um my only rule is no politics it can be anything except politics. Um, so it's fun. It's uh, pe people seem to to vent vicariously through them. Well, you know, one of the things that struck me is that, to my mind, when somebody's having fun in a creative mode and they're creating, the people who are experiencing that on the other end, whether it's writing music, um, acting whatever you can sense that the creator is having fun and that makes it a lot more fun for the audience too oh yeah if you, you can tell i mean i was an editor for 16 years you can tell when somebody's writing something out of obligation mm. and it it can be technically beautiful but um it lacks something uh, i don't want to call it soul but it definitely lacks something in terms of life but when somebody's having fun with it, um, that that also shows. Uh, yeah, passion is is what mm. I, that that would be the word I might use. Let's get back to nineteen thirteen. The suffragettes. All I could think about was the David Bowie song. <laughs> <laughs> 
Which is a good thing to think about, though not necessarily having much to do with 1913. Yeah. That that said, it, talk about uh, this kind. You know, it for us it would be a relentlessly repressive time to live because we're kind of easy. I think most people in in America these days are used to acting out for good or for ill. In a way that, if you did it that in back in the the setting of these books, you know they they throw you in in jail or in the madhouse or you know one after the other. Mm-hmm. Uh, so talk about you know keeping your characters in check when you yourself are clearly not less so in check. It really it wasn't so hard to keep them in check when I when I get into. A project, especially one of my historicals, um, that's my mindset when I sit down to write. Uh, my my training, a history major, that's kind of where my passion is, and I just immerse myself in the period. I do a lot of reading. I do a lot of um, primary source reading beforehand to get myself in the feel of what they would be reading, what they would be hearing about. Uh, Rosemary is a little more plugged into what's going on in the world around her than than her brother is. So they know things. They know they've had a um, cohort who have been sent over to Europe. Um, there's a just kind of a throwaway line in the first book about how um, the unrest in Europe is causing the uncanny there to start acting up. So American uncanny have gone over there. American huntsmen have gone over there to help. Um, which is again, a foreshadowing of what's going to happen in the human world. So when I sit down to write, I have all this in my head. This is the world that I'm I'm dipping myself into. I feel Rosemary's frustration. I feel Aaron's frustration when they can't do something and I share it. And I don't tend to think about, well, I would have done something else or why can't they do this? Because I'm working within the constraints of what their life is. It's very much an immersive philosophy for me. Uh, Method acting. (laughs) I guess so, yeah, yeah. You know, um, one of the things that I love about this book is the the setup. These two are huntsmen. They hunt the supernatural critters, that, and you list a number of them. I was so happy to see the word snallygaster in this. <laughs> I, I have only encountered that in the writings of John Keel in his book Disneyland of the Gods, I think it was. And so um, we have this kind of setup, and the, the whole kind of uh, supernatural cops thing is, is really interesting. How much of this did you set up in your mind beforehand before, you know, do you set it on paper and say, okay, they've got these people, they're set up, they're huntsmen, etc. How, how much of this, you know, the command and control structure, so to speak, do you have set up in your, in your brain before you start writing the, the actual prose? I joke that this book came about um, 15 years of yelling at the TV screen while watching Supernatural. <laughs> <laughs> about no, that's wrong my god why can't you do world building you're not consistent and just all this this crankiness i mean i love the show absolutely love the show i watched 
all 15 seasons. I must love the show. Um, but I was, as a writer, I was like, and as a, as a reader, I'm like, oh my God, all the possibilities that you guys have squandered because you're doing a TV show, how would I do it? And I am a very logical thinker. I'm very pragmatic. Um, I like my structures to make sense. My magical structures have to make sense. I need to be able to see how they work, how the pieces all fit together. And I just kind of thought about it. It wasn't even like, oh, I'm going to write this book. It was, okay, how would I do this? Because that's what writers do in our spare time. We write books that we don't think we're going to write. Or we tell ourselves about books that we're not, we don't think we're going to write. And I had actually been under contract for something else. And the book was not working. I, I wasn't feeling the passion for it. Um, and so I went to my editor. I said, I can't do this book. I'm sorry. I'm going to put it aside. How about this? And I just pulled that idea out of the back of my head and threw it at him. I said, brother and sister, monster hunters in 1913 America. And he looked at me like, oh, yes, do that. Uh, and then I'm like, oh, my God, now I have to write this. But it uh, all the world had been building in my head over time. And it was just kind of like, okay, this is the project I'm, I'm going to write next, which is how most of my projects actually kind of come to me. Um, for all that I plan and plot and, and think about these things, it's, I joke that my brain is a storage room and everything I see and everything I learn, I kind of throw in the back. And every once in a while, something knocks against something else and knocks a couple of things over and I open the door and a story falls out. It's like seeding clouds, Wait, mm. waiting for it to rain. You're just constantly seeding the clouds up there in your brain, and eventually it rains a, a brand new delightful series for us to read. You know? Except sometimes you don't know if you're going to get a nice little storm or if you're going to get a thunderstorm, and sometimes you get a tornado. <laughs> <laughs> Early on, our, our, our hero and heroine uh, arrive, and oh, there's, I forgot my favorite character uh botheration uh, this is a, a a dog a large dog so you know what i found interesting was the breed uh, you called it a molosser and, yeah and that was a very i looked that up and that was a rabbit hole i went down very quickly <laughs> so tell us about choosing to call it a molosser a molosser is um as a breed is technically extinct now. Uh, Molossa, I think it was from Molossas, I think was the location. It was a um, either a breed or a, a series of, of types of dogs in, um, in Rome. And they were mostly used for war dogs as, as protection, but apparently they were also household animals. And the actual breed has died out but they are pretty sure that most mastiffs and bully breeds are descended from them. And there are, there are some pictures or some drawings, there are some sculptures. They're basically massive dogs, uh, very large, somewhat scary looking, but very loyal. And I thought, okay, yeah, that's it. That's, that's going to be um, their companion. And I didn't know much more than that. And Bother is another character who, as I'm writing the book, is taking shape. And there's a sort of almost 
tossed away revelation in the book about some of his background that I didn't think about until I got there and went, oh, of course, that's that makes perfect sense. And he's great. He is, he is, I, I tend to, apparently I tend to write really good animal characters because the, um, the mule flat foot in the Devil's West books still gets fan mail. <laughs> <laughs> Actually, I got threats once. Um, I, I had beta readers for one of the books and I left them off at a scene and they're like, if you hurt the mule, we're never speaking to you again. I'm like, oh, okay. Uh, <laughs> you know, uh, when they arrive in town, the, one of the first places they go is the, the library. And I thought that th this was really interesting, even though it's set in 1913, all my 2022, uh, you know, alarms started tripping since libraries these days are more threatened species than uh, molossers or anything else. Uh, so talk about using the library, and especially in this kind of fiction, libraries often pop up because of the books that reside there, and books are an important part of this uh, story as well. Uh, talk about the import of libraries and, and just using them, and then lead us to the character you create. It was kind of a no-brainer for me to send them to the library uh, especially in small towns, that is not only where reference would be, it's usually the historical society as well. They usually shared uh, space. And librarians knew everything. And they knew everyone. Uh, a lot of the times they might have been a former school teacher or you know they'd grown up there. If you wanted to really know who had the pulse of a town, talk to a librarian. And it just, anybody who is going to have a history of the town who might know something that would be useful, that would be it. Um, and you can go to town hall and you can get um, blueprints to buildings and you can get permits, you can get all that paperwork, but you can't get the people. And my feeling was in a small town, that period, if you didn't want to be known as gossiping and you didn't want people to know you were looking around, the librarian is the one who would want to talk to you. Now, the librarian you create, Miss Baker, is an interesting character because she has a, a pretty quick connection uh, to Rosemary. And, and I thought you handled that whole sensibility throughout the book really, really well. Um, talk about you know, creating something that today would be, you could have a whole TV series about, but then uh, sitting back then, you know, everything's got to remain pretty much unsaid. Yeah, there is definitely a lot of sapphic flirting happening in that book. Um, yeah, it's, on one hand, Rosemary is very calculating. And she will use what she needs to, to get her information. On the other hand, she really, really liked Miss Baker. She found her very appealing. Um, and I think kind of felt sorry about the fact that she had to use her this way. And Miss Baker desperately wanted um, to show off. Mm -hmm. There was definitely a lot of that going on. And yes, it had to be 
unspoken, um, not because those relationships didn't exist then, they absolutely did, but it was circumspect. It was maybe understood, but never spoken of. Mm -hmm. uh, there was a phrase uh, that my family grew up with called a Boston marriage, which oh. was when two gal pals lived together, set up house, um, their friends, yeah. So I was definitely playing with that, um, that interaction, that connection that Rosemary had to somebody outside of her family, because she is very isolated in how they live. You know, um, one thing that's interesting in the, the setup of the Huntsman, and you're very coy about this, you don't say much about them, the Fae. And I think that that's, you know, it's an almost Lovecraftian reference because it it suggests a lot and it doesn't suggest giant nebulous monsters, but it suggests giant nebulous power in whoever the Fae are. And, and so talk about, you know, I'm curious, how much do you know about them or are they at this point just kind of a... a a word that you're using to, you know, keep the narrative going. You have some a general idea of what's going on, but um, do you know more? I know, I know who and what they are. Okay. Um, and I know how they tie into the world. Oh, so we'll, we'll see was, that in the next book, I imagine. Well, I was going to say when when I was writing the first book, which I was at the time was supposed to be a one-off. It was just kind of like, okay, this is going to be. Uh, something that's lurking in the background. This is something that all huntsmen know. This is a threat. It's not really relevant here. And then I got the, writing the end of the book and I went, oops, okay, kind of relevant. Um, in the second book, which I'm uh, working on now, it's brought up again. It's still a background issue. It's something that they worry about. You learn a little bit more about the Fae. You learn a little bit more about Huntsman in general. Um, but it's still something that's building. So, you know, books three and four, if they happen, we will learn a lot more. I'm pretty thinking books three and four will happen. I mean, whoever your agent is should be sending this to Amazon <laughs> and... Uh, Netflix and and find you know give uh, Sarah Michelle Geller some more work. <laughs> uh, you know, I'm guessing that given that you're the author of the paranormal scene investigation urban fantasy series, that the uh, supernatural forensics that we experience in your book, this is not your first radio with those. So, but I think you do it really well. So talk about that because that's one of the things I find really, really fun in this kind of book is to see the kind of crime scene forensics that we're used to seeing in every single episode of every stupid TV show that I watch. Um, uh, to, you know, see see them put through the funhouse mirror of the supernatural as you see the supernatural. Yeah, as I said before, I tend to be very pragmatic about uh, when I'm world building my magic systems. Uh, in the Cosinus Adamus, it's all based on electricity, which explained why creatures were and, and uh, magic users were drawn to cities because there was man-made electricity there that they could just power up on. Um, here, I very much wanted there to be a way to figure out what they're dealing with. Um, 
if they're going to go on a hunt, they need to know what they're hunting. They need to know what works against particular creatures. They need to be able to determine what's real, what's not evidence. Um, and I used a little bit of mythology, um, bits and pieces here, definitely cherry picked from as much as I could read a little bit of the burgeoning science at the time because 1913 was developing huge leaps. Uh, it's, it's actually kind of fun, this non-spoilery moment here in that they use fairy lights, which uh, not really, they're not really supposed to, they're not human invention. They're not supposed to use these, but they're very effective. But Rosemary also carries a tungsten flash, which was the, the first iteration of a flashlight. So at this, you've got these two things coexisting, um, both tools that are being used because they're both what's available. And that's pretty much how I approached how they would investigate, using the tools that were available to them, both historically and the new science. Uh, I'm sure if they could figure out how to use fingerprint, fingerprint powder, which I think was about that time, they certainly would. Um, but it, it required a lot of research to figuring out what was available, what I could do, um, what weapons would be practical and what wouldn't be practical. What would they carry? You know, um, you know, your series, you know, are this uh, story starts out with a murder and there's a victim and, and we get to have, a you know, an exhumation scene. And I thought you'd have a have a lot of fun with that one <laughs> because you you bring in you know not only do you get to dig up a body out of a grave we get to to you know think about the technology that went into putting people in the ground at the time which is not the technology we have now the morals now where you know it's no we've even gone beyond cremation now we're into human composting mm -hmm. um. Uh, talk about that and also just, uh, you know, the fun of adding the supernatural element into this whole uh, shebang. Yeah, that that's one of my favorite scenes to read also. Um, I wanted that to show, mainly in that scene, I wanted to show how they are completely unafraid of things that most people are are afraid of being out in, you know, spooky places among the dead, there was still a lot of superstition. And yet at the same time, cemeteries were also where people had picnics, uh, just not at night. So I really wanted to, to play with that scene and show that they're, especially Rosemary, that they're not afraid to get their hands dirty. And <laughs> literally, and not, being a, I mean, there's a line in there about how Aaron thinks that, you know, um, having to get the body out of the, the the coffin is like his second least favorite thing to do. And I have no idea what his least favorite thing is. I honestly am not sure I want to find out because if that's number two, um, but they're very matter of fact about it. And even the, um, the supernatural incident that happens during the scene, I don't want to spoil it for anybody. Uh, even that, they're very matter of fact. It's just like, oh God, okay, yeah, we have to deal with this now. And I, that really, that scene, originally that scene was first in the book. That's mm -hmm. what originally opened 
uh, I tried to do a cold open and we determined it did not work. But that scene, writing that scene gave me a lot of information about Aaron and Rosemary and how they reacted both to each other and to things that happened to them. So yeah, that, that, was, a, that was a great scene. And they are very much hands-on in that regard. They do not hesitate um, getting in the thick of things. Now, this is a book where there are, the characters are themselves in pursuit of the uncanny, and these uncanny are, are critters. And I'm the sort of fellow who, you know, wants to ascertain that there's a monster in the damn movie before I go to shout my dollars for it, even if it's like for about 30 seconds, which is what, what, what it was in the last thing I saw. So talk about, you know, setting up the uh, supernatural world of critters and monsters. I mean, what the heck is a snallygaster? <laughs> <laughs> Whatever you need it to be, pretty much. Uh, okay, good. Uh, I, I very intentionally, and this is something I did in the Kusunos Adamas also, I very intentionally make the supernatural in this world um, a melting pot, um, although it's really less of a melting pot, more of a, a stew. Um, it's it's a world of immigrants, so you have all of the native mythology. You have the mythology that people bring with them. You have creatures that come with um, the humans as they come over, and you have creatures that wander, um, that basically decide to pack up and, and move to another country because life might be better there. And I want all of these things to be happening. It's not like, okay, there's this, re well, there, there is, there are regional monsters. Some live, some uncanny live here, some uncanny live over there. You tend not to see them. If you do see them, you got to think, okay, what's the problem? Uh, if you're having a migration of uncanny creatures, what caused that migration? This actually becomes relevant in later in later stories. Uh, so these are things that I really wanted to be able to pull from a whole bunch of different cultures and say, okay, yes, we have these, we have the things everybody knows, but we also have things that people may not have heard of that came with humans or followed humans. Uh, because I, th I think that is America, especially America of the turn of the century. America, where we were still having huge waves. Monsters. <laughs> well, we were having huge waves of immigration at the time. Uh, pretty much, I think it was the Irish and the German, mm -hmm. uh, Germans at that time. And so it made perfect sense that you would have immigration of uncanny creatures as well. You know, um, also at that time, you do well at playing the, the politics of the time for all that you give us, uh, you know, a variety of, of entertaining monsters and turn critters that we might not have thought of as monsters into monsters. The, the, the real monsters uh, are, are the humans. <laughs> so, so talk about the, the, the two, uh, 
merchantmen who are moving in. Oh yeah, and, and they are really you know, you just I just this just got my back up the second I saw them. I said, oh my god, these people are repulsive. I hope something really bad happens to them. And it, so tell us about creating them. Yeah, well, the thing about that is, yes, yes, your immediate reaction to them is, oh, my God, these are horrible. Are they the villains? Um, and, I mean, that was very much intentional um, because in many ways, yes, they are the villains. But they're also perfectly ordinary and normal villains. The ni- 1930s, ni- early uh, 19-teens was politically and socially fascinating and even more so to be writing it during the past year or so because major i mean strike breaking and unions forming and uh suffragettes and a lot of people becoming very politically active who hadn't been before and a lot of crackdowns a lot of um, corporations really starting to stretch their muscles. All of this is is being echoed around us as I was writing it, which was kind of horrifying, actually, as a historian. Uh, But the people that populate these stories are very true to the people of the time. I I am a firm believer in when I'm writing, especially a historical fantasy of two truths and a lie. I like to use the actual politics. I like to use the actual financial events that were going on. First of all, because they're incredibly useful. Second of all, because I couldn't make up some of this stuff. (laughs) Nobody would believe me, but it's real. This is actually what happened. Uh, And that allows me to hang the lie in between them. And they're all equally implausible. Therefore, they must all be true. This is the hope anyway. That's how that's how I use history to frame the fantastic. In uh, if I if I do my job right, I blend them so much that you're not really sure. You're pretty sure you know which is real, but there's got to be some doubt. I I think you do a, a great job. I hadn't thought of it in that way, but that's a, that's exactly right. You you keep us going. Now, I thought it was interesting too. Uh, Rosemary has a bit of a problem. It's a contemporary problem now. Uh, so tell us about creating that. And, and, you know, we can see that by the end of this book, we have not seen the, the last of this problem. Uh, the, uh, Aaron recognizes it's a problem. And uh, I thought the, the way you handled that was nice and also well-fitting within the history of the time. This is after all, I mean, Samuel Zell or Coleridge have been getting up, uh, uh, hitting up the the laudanum. (laughs) Well, it goes back to the fact that they were raised as soldiers. Uh, They have a um, vaguely traumatic family history. They're under immense amounts of stress. And there's no way that, that they would not have issues, that they would not have stressors that would break them. And I wanted to explore how they would react and how they would handle those stresses in a very human way. 
And yes, Rosemary um, is very much aware of the fact that she has a problem. She's very much aware of the fact that her crutch is not a healthy one. It's not a good one. Uh, she's a smart woman. She's also aware of the fact that it's a useful crutch for her. And she's convinced it's not a problem. Mm. That's always the case, isn't it? We, we, uh, <laughs> we know we've got to come. It's complex. We're completely under control. Um, so the question, of course, will become, yeah, how does she handle it going forward? Yeah. Now, uh, one thing I thought was also really interesting, what uh, as regards to supernatural, especially the supernatural police, is that you talk about there's a certain morality there in terms of their interactions with, you know, what are arguably and demonstrably monsters. And this is in terms of the sigils, you know, whether you're setting a trap for something or just calling it. And that That's a shady distinction. I think that that's an interesting, you know, uh, shade of gray to put in this kind of novel. And where you put that shade of gray is also very interesting because monsters lend themselves, do not necessarily lend themselves to shades of gray. You know, it's a monster. It's, you know, it's going to rip your face off and, and eat it. So maybe <laughs> shades of gray, you know, shades of red, yes. I uh, I actually love playing in the shades of gray. I think that's the most interesting place to put your characters, all of your characters, um, heroes and the villains and the secondary characters, because people are complicated. Monsters are complicated. And the, the line that they draw is a shifting one and nobody has ever really told them where the line is. They, they have to keep feeling it out for themselves. And uh, at least in book two, you learn that the line is different for a lot of different huntsmen. But it was very important to me that they understand that they're not, they're not the end all and be all. They're doing a job and it's not a quest. It's not a holy mission. It's not an obsession. It's a job. And there are things that you don't do on the job. And yeah, uh, Rosemary and Aaron have to argue it because sometimes it would be easier to do those things. It would get the job done faster, but there's going to be a cost. You know, and um, I wanted them to be aware of that cost. Mm -hmm. uh, one of the things that is interesting in this novel is I think you pace it really well. It's not paced so fast that you know, you're kind of like always thinking, well, I'm going to read two or three pages ahead just to find out what the heck is happening. And on the other hand, I was, you know, just riveted to my chair and reading through it. So talk about finding that happy medium of really fast, really engrossing, but not so fast that, you know, it's like uh, the fight scenes in a bad Nicolas Cage movie or something. <laughs> Honestly, I think I'm going to have to give a lot of credit to my editor, Joe Monty. Um, I, I like to, as people who've read my work know that I tend to uh, spin things out at a very, a, a much more deliberate pace than a lot of um, contemporary 
genre stories do. It's not bam, 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 bam. I like to be able to un- to unroll the things. And periodically, Joe will just be like, this is a really good seat, now cut it. Uh, <laughs> cut it in half, it's, you're taking too long. Uh, but it's it's a question of, of allowing your characters to breathe and remembering that these are these are people and we don't go headlong into everything. We do have downtime. There, there are moments for just being siblings, sitting, having coffee. There are moments when you're thinking about something other than the job. And that is what makes the story complete because otherwise you, yeah, you can, it's a choose your own adventure kind of thing where you're just going from one action scene to another and those are fun. It's not what I write. I like to take people on a full journey. And that includes the quieter, more contemplative moments. That includes the the moments where um, you're seeing the world around, not just the scene that they're focusing on. You know, uh, creating a small town in 1913 in America, that was that was that a challenge for you? Because it it seemed it's very well done. It feels really full and real. And in a sense, I feel like at even after reading this, I can kind of walk around in the streets. It, it's like I have memories of a vacation I didn't go on, and to the degree that there are lots of monsters. I'm glad I didn't wasn't there, but <laughs> on the other hand, I probably would have enjoyed seeing those monsters. But uh, so talk about just creating that small town. That's probably people. that's probably the hardest part for me. Um, I have on on the wall of my office. I always have a map, and um, I draw like blueprints of where they are. Uh, and I know the thing settings is behind you. <laughs> actually over to the other side but um but the uh for me that's actually really difficult i know the place uh i tend to base it on an actual location and then extrapolate what i need from it in that particular case i know upstate new york i'd never been that far upstate uh, I talked to people who do live there. I got their feedback, but creating the, the town of that time and the feel of it, the roads, um, the, the transportation that would be available, even the way that the houses would be built and decorated, that's all straight up primary research. Um, and that's where, I mean, I, I love doing research. I, um, what kind of history? history major. What kind of histories? What kind of books do you read? Do you go to? Do you like visit? Go to online libraries and look up, you know, addresses and information. No, actually, um, I like to look at blueprints. Mm. I like to uh, look at um, how plots of land were divided up. I like to look at structural uh, prints of where towns put their railroad and where built where the commercial district was structural stuff it's also a lot of looking at magazines of the time for fashion and for decor i don't really get i'm not the writer who will describe every single thing somebody's wearing it's 
It's not interesting to me and I tend not to put it in, but I need to know specifics of what their clothing was like so that I can know where a knife can be hidden. I can know whether Rosemary is going to be able to get herself out of a six foot deep grave that they've just dug up without needing a ladder. I need to know um, how long they're going to take in the bathroom. You know, what, what was the plumbing like? So I know more about toilets in that time period than I really ever wanted to know. <laughs> the, the, the things I learned for my, for these books, I uh, just, and, and you mentioned before going down a rabbit hole. I went down a complete rabbit hole on plumbing. Sounds like I, fun. I, it, it, it was, it's fascinating. It's absolutely fascinating, but it's like, what, it, what, what is, what did I have to forget to take up space in my head to remember this? Yeah. That hard drive is, is limited. In There's some... always so much room. Yeah. 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 Uh, but that's, I, I'm very much a fan of first person research. And then, as I said, it goes into the storeroom of my brain and I let it sit there for a while. And then when I need it, it kind of falls out onto the page without me having to to reach for it. So you've got the second book queued up and you're close to being, you're on deadline. Absolutely. I'm on deadline. 100%. Totally on deadline. On deadline. Yes. <laughs> yeah. The second book uh, takes place about six months after. Um, and uh, how does, without giving away too much, uh, we learn a little bit more about how the huntsmen work and how the huntsmen are funded and they get to uh, see a very different um, it's a very different kind of hunt where they're called in uh, and have to be diplomatic mm. they can't just go and and do what they want they have to be very careful because they're among the the wealthy mm. for some of this hunt which complicates things for them now you, with the, your Patreon, your short story writing, I mean, it would have taken me like ten minutes to uh, list out all the novels, all the series you've written. <laughs> you have a lot on your plate, and this is like you know this kind of thing is you know linear. I, I you've got to like make sure that book two doesn't contradict book one and and leaves room for books three and four because you really want those and so do I. Uh, talk about just managing your time as a writer in a, a global sense. Uh, is there any like strategy that you have or is it just like, well, I, you know, I have to lash myself down periodically when I see the de deadlines coming. I used to be incredibly organized and very focused and everything. And that that was 10 years ago. Um, my life is chaotic right now, um, especially with the addition of Max, my dog, who she's two years old now and we're starting to settle into routine, but she still kind of rules the day. Uh, I'm very deadline oriented. Uh, I very much keep to a schedule of, okay, I need to get this writing done but little background three years ago um they found a tumor and i was suddenly put in a position of this might be it 
they thought it was ovarian cancer. They thought it was advanced. Um, and I had to, over a period of several days, come to terms with the fact that I needed to make a will. I needed to have power of attorney. I needed to do all of these things. And fortunately, I'm, I'm still here. It was, it was not malignant. But I think a lot of what I've been doing and driving myself kind of got put on hold and said, okay, no, I don't want to live like that. And then we had two years plus of pandemic. So right now I manage my time by project and I say, okay, this is what I'm working on now and I'm going to focus on it. And I've got other things that are happening and they happen as they happen. I no longer say I have to write these, this many projects. I no longer say I have to write this many words. It happens as it happens. I love doing it. I love writing. So it's a pleasure for me to sit down and write. But I, if there's a day that comes, I'm just like, I can't, I can't do this today. I take the dog and I go for a hike. And I think I'm not producing as quickly, but I think it's a lot better for me and for the stories that I'm giving them time to actually, um, to happen. With Uncanny Times as an example, I concur. <laughs> what a wonderful book. Thank you for speaking with me. Laura Ann Gilman's new novel is Uncanny Times. Thank you for joining me, Laura. Thank you for having me. You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom agony.